Welcome to the Imbalance podcast series, hosted by Brady Technologies, your guide to short-term power markets in Europe and beyond. Hello everyone, I'm Nahid Manikavasaga and welcome to this edition of the Imbalance podcast. Today I'm joined by my colleagues Chris Regan and Dimitri Ishutin. The topic for today's podcast is decarbonisation. So Chris, there's a lot going on right now. What are your thoughts on the National Grid's latest future energy scenarios report? Thank you, Nahid. Um, there's so much going on at the moment. Um, before I start on National Grid, though, I just wanted to introduce that uh, Dimitri has joined Brady. It's his first podcast with us. Dimitri is a quant trader with significant experience of curve and short-term trading. He's also created fantastic demand forecast models, um, system imbalance direction forecasters, generation forecast models, and uh, and then on to trading. So he added over £20 million to the bottom line of EDF. And now in Brady, he's working on some really advanced optimization engines and our algo trading solution for PowerDesk Edge. So welcome, Dimitri, to the call. Thank you, Chris. I couldn't think of a better introduction. That's no worries. Um, Murray will be joining us next time. But we are just in the middle of delivering some fantastic day ahead functionality into PowerDesk. So he, so he asked to be um, let off today. We could never let him off before because, of course, it was only me and Murray and me having a podcast with myself would have been very bad for our listeners. But to, to Nihid's actual question, um, there's a great article that came out from National Grid on their future energy scenarios that you're asking me about. And so it was it was titled um, Net Zero and Beyond. And for those of you out there who work quite closely with the National Grid future energy scenarios, you'll be quite familiar with them. And they've got a number of scenarios from steady progression to all the way up to leading the way. And these are these are the types of documents that in the GB market, especially, people use to start planning out their future. Now, what I found really interesting about this, a great quote that I kind of looked at was, despite increasing efficiencies in appliances and the use of thermal storage, Electricity demand is projected to be higher in 2050 than today. This is due to the increasing use of heat pumps in the commercial sectors and reductions in battery electrical vehicles, efficiency assumptions, but also increased electricity demand requires a lot more generation capacity as well as flexible technology such as storage and demand-side response. So if we, if we listen to that, we are seeing a move of the thought process from longer term low carbon generation which is what we're thinking about today to low carbon generation needing to be coupled with flexibility and when i read through that article and i i urge anyone who's working in the energy industry impacted by the gb market to read these publications by national grid the things that come out to me are they very much consider and think about the build out of electric vehicles electric vehicles are going to be a huge um, requirement of energy for the transportation industry but the pinch point on electric vehicle build out will not be capacity at the tso it will be capacity at the distribution system operator the dso and getting enough copper on the ground locally so it would be also be good to see an element of future planning and transparency which i don't see yet so anywhere of our listeners you see it please point out to me if i've missed it but from uk power networks western power distribution scottish and southern networks etc i'd love to understand how a future energy scenario from national grid 
also feeds into a future energy scenario that is complementary from each of the 14 regions that the DSOs run. The other thing I found really interesting is we're really starting to concentrate on hydrogen in transport. I've been doing a little bit of work myself on hydrogen recently. and you know It's a fantastic route to decarbonisation, um, but I'd really love to see development of commercial models out there and PPA offtake contracts that allows the creators of hydrogen to actually get the right kind of risk management. Um, and before I pass to Dimitri for any kind of commentary on that, the other thing that's really interesting is heat pumps. When I worked at EDF previously, my boss, John Benoit, had invented a heat pump and had it painted it. He was a, he was a clever guy. He, he knew that kind of thing. And we were very much into the future of heat pumps. The build out of ground source and air source heat pumps in the GB market is a significant increase in electrical demand and decrease in the use of natural gas. This is going to be a really interesting place to bring in interruptibility or flexibility because heat pumps by default go into your house, which has got thermal latency. If it goes into your house with thermal latency, you've got flexibility. So if I add up EV smart charging, production of hydrogen, heat pumps, even though it's a low carbon topic, what we're really saying is we need short term flexibility to be monetized for a product like Brady's power desk to allow you to trade in this brave new low carbon world with all of that flexibility. What thoughts did you have, Dimitri? Um, thank you, Chris. Um, I think uh, in general, this move of the market into uh, renewable generation, and as you said, the increased role of um, distribution network operators may lead to slightly higher costs, uh, such as non-energy costs uh, that customers will uh, have to um, take the burden of. Uh, but overall, for the environment, obviously, this is going to have a positive impact. Also, I would like to mention that um, according to the report, the role of demand-side response is going to um, be uh, quite big in the future. Um, and uh, in fact, this is what we have already seen in the industry um, when uh, there is a lot of intermittency happening on the market. And uh, it's, it's, the market is becoming really volatile. So in order to capitalize on those volatile opportunities, um, I think traders need to uh, potentially develop some more sophisticated solutions and uh, leverage automated and algorithmic trading um, uh, in, in the future. And on hydrogen, yes, a really, really interesting topic. Uh, at the moment, it's uh, mostly, mostly small-scale projects, which are funded by um, balance sheets of uh, large utilities and industrial companies. So still an, an opportunity to be proven in the industry, but definitely is looking very, very interesting down the line. Great work by the National Grid, and we always look forward to the updates on the future energy scenarios reports. Another really good summary that was published on market trends recently was by the consulting firm Timera. So what are your thoughts on the five emerging trends that they identified? Are we generally in agreement with them? So Nahid, I had a read over this one. Um, and don't worry, listeners, I will let Dimitri go first on a, on a couple soon. It's just the order they've come in. Um, the, the five trends, um, Tamara analysis, really interesting. So if you, if you go and you read the article, you'll see policy momentum with a focus on flex, higher carbon and power prices, batteries in Southern Europe, which is very interesting, tighter energy and gas markets, I think that's already happening, and hydrogen momentum are the five trends that they talked about in their article. Now, from my perspective, when I read that, I thought really, really interesting. First thing, momentum is building behind policy. 
but is also starting to consider flexibility. Now, given that Brady are producing a short-term trading platform that focuses on accuracy of balancing low carbon, but also the the demonstration of how to use flexibility in the short term to make money, I love the fact that that Tamara are pointing out that we have stopped just talking about low carbon and a kind of PPA rhetoric, and we're talking about low carbon and the requirements for flexibility to complement that because that's where we we know we needed to be for a long time and then of course it moves into the fact that there's been no real price evolution in terms of southern europe needing batteries there hasn't been great pushes in ancillary services there hasn't been great volatility because there's already a lot of plant providing ancillary services so again creating a market reason to build out batteries in an area of Europe that's got this very high renewables capability is really, really important. And it's great that they're thinking about, you know, network code and charging reforms and giving, essentially, as they said, giving a tailwind for flexible assets. So a bit of a pun there. I would never do that myself. Um, The other thing that really came out of it for me was they talked a lot about Spain embarking on an interesting path um, in terms of the pivotal role for batteries in the Spanish market and their expectation, a good proportion of battery investment is, lo- is likely to be co-located with solar farms. This is quite an interesting parallel to the GB market because when, I, when I've been very involved in the battery GB market, there is very little value in co-location because the losses across the grid are only sub 1%. So you could buy build a battery, but you don't need to put it right next to your solar array because it can optimize it from a distance because you don't get any benefits outside of the capex for co-location in the charging mechanisms but i think a much bigger country like spain and that kind of spread out and with their different kind of um, market regimes it'd be very interesting what kind of optimizers and software will be available for local optimization as well as national price driven optimization so the overlap of the two is required to be put into a really good flexibility software solution and we're actually building out PowerDesk for one of our future customers to be Spanish market and Spanish market battery ready. So we're really excited about that. Any thoughts from yourself, Dimitri, on Tamara's article? Um, really interesting article when I had a look at it. Um, just to give a little bit of context on the uh, current market situation, one of the key trends that the um, consultancy uh, has highlighted, the policy momentum, which you have uh, just spoken about, Chris, and also uh, high carbon and power prices. And I think the both are quite linked, um, actually, if we look at the current fundamental picture on the market. Uh, for clarity, at the moment, um, European carbon allowance is trading at 57 uh, euros per ton uh, as we speak uh, in the middle of August. And just for comparison, only a year ago, it was trading at 25 euros per ton. So it's almost a 100% increase in uh, about a year, which is something unheard of for the commodities market. Uh, Again, this emphasizes huge volatility that is happening at at present. Um, If we speak about power, uh, winter 21, front season contract is currently trading at 110 pounds per megawatt hour, while a year ago it was trading at 48 pounds per megawatt hour. So this is actually a 130% increase year on year, even more than the European carbon. Now, if I move to the third component of the energy stack, which is European gas NBP uh, contract, uh, UK NBP contract, it's currently trading at 115 pence per firm, while a year ago it was trading at 41 pence per firm. 
which is 200% increase year on year. Now, this is, uh, this is a lot. This is a lot. And uh, obviously, we saw some fundamental shifts uh, in the market, such as um, uh, demand for power and gas uh, plummeted last year with the introduction of the lockdown and uh, the pandemic um, happening in the world. But then from the, since the announcement of new vaccines in November, uh, which were made by the major pharmaceutical companies, uh, demand for power and gas uh, started to go up again. And this, was, uh, this coincided with really cold temperature in Asia. And uh, being the net importers, the Asian market put a lot of pressure on the international energy complex. And that resulted in significantly higher prices in Asia and kind of a bidding war between Asia and Europe. Uh, so Europe had to uh, follow the Asian lead and also uh, prices, um, uh, prices increased as a result of that. Uh, so in fact, at the moment, we see that storages are not as full as they um, uh, typically used to be. Uh, so storages are kind of depleted in Europe. Uh, and we are actually approaching winter, which may uh, ring an alarming bell for some of the traders and especially compliance buys. But overall, yeah, we see really, really strong momentum building up on the energy market and uh, prices, uh, especially for gas and power, are comfortably trading in the three-digit territory, uh, which is um, at least two times greater than their historical average. So, Dimitri, um, it was interesting that you said that these kind of volatility rises are unheard of. Um, it's, it's unfortunate here I have to introduce that I'm about 100 years older than you because um, – I remember this makes sense. In two thousand and eight, when we saw huge um, growth in the economy of the U.S. with the kind of mortgage lending, etc., that's when I saw this kind of volatility before. We saw a huge upturn in price, and then as the uh, the Lehman Brothers failure and the credit crunch broke in, we saw a huge downward swing again, a bit like we did recently with the COVID demand destruction. And similarly, after a very long period of low gas prices through two thousand and one two. What we saw from 2003 to 2005 was extreme volatility based on spreads because, again, underinvestment in the system. So what we want to make sure we get out of this particular rise in prices is that it, it maintains um, it's at the right price for the consumer level. But also um, we, we don't suddenly get um, an over build out of, of like we did for the dash for gas in the 90s of assets and infrastructure that's beyond the longer term needs because ultimately there's markets out there have come to embrace volatility and see it as good because it's a price incentive but it doesn't cause over build out definitely so i've seen a lot of commentary from the perspective of power players and the newer entrants like flexible asset owners dimitri what do you think about the oil sector's perspective on all this it's a big cultural shift for them isn't it very good question, Nihid. Um, obviously, oil being one of the most important commodities um, in the world and uh, kind of a benchmark for the state of the economy and the, uh, the economic recovery, uh, especially after the pandemic, uh, it's really important to look at it and address the main concerns. As we speak, oil is currently trading uh, just slightly below $70, uh, $70 per barrel, uh, which is uh, roughly the same level where it was February last year before uh, before the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, so demand for oil currently remains uh, quite strong, as especially with the vaccine rollout. However, uh, still there is some uh, weakness that uh, has been seen recently, uh, especially with the spread of the Delta variant. Uh, 
So although uh, oil prices have significantly recovered from where they were uh, a year ago, um, now there are some concerns and big, uh, big um, investment banks such as Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan Commodities Research um, uh, have uh, changed their narrative slightly and became uh, less bullish on oil uh, due to the rise in infection rates. Um, however, if we uh, take a step back and uh, have a look at it um, from the long-term perspective, um, one can argue that with the pace of decarbonization, uh, oil prices are supposed to go lower. However, um, uh, th th this is not the narrative that uh, most of the uh, banks and institutions uh, go, go by. Uh, they actually think uh, that um, the uh, pace and the race for decarbonization will push oil prices higher. And this is linked with the fact that uh, after the economic recovery, uh, in the uh, energy intensive industries such as aviation, mining, petrochemicals will actually see uh, a, an increase in demand for oil. And uh, with the current levels of production, that should um, push prices up. Um, in other words, higher oil prices in the near term uh, can actually accelerate um, enduring demand destruction. Uh, and uh, this is what we saw um, in the biggest oil major companies, such as Shell, BP and Total, when they made announcements of significant uh, strategy changes in the beginning of the year uh, and their pace to decarbonize, uh, their race to decarbonization. Um, in fact, uh, their, their, their stock, stock prices have, um, have increased significantly. Um, so definitely, it's a, it's a very interesting space to watch. Definitely. Oh, just before we move on, Nahid, I've, I really like that article as well. Dimitri's really summarized it. Great, great quote, though, from, from the Tamara team, where they basically say one of the most common misconceptions in energy markets that is a forward curve in backwardation is bearish, which essentially backwardation is where it's downward sloping. Um, but then they go on to say a backwardated curve reflects the fact that the market is paying a premium for near-term delivery of oil. And I think that's something that we, we should note from that. There's a problem now. We think it will go away, but it might not. And that could be really, really challenging. So I look forward to see the way the market goes as we come into this post-COVID area. Definitely. And finally, it looks like China's getting pretty serious about emissions trading. So what are your thoughts on the Chinese emissions trading scheme and how their approach might be different to the European approach? Yeah, that's um, a very interesting uh, change that happened recently in the energy market. So as many listeners will know, uh, the European trading scheme has been prevailing for uh, uh, several years and it's one of the oldest um, carbon trading schemes um, in the world. Uh, and uh, the UK scheme was actually introduced not long ago, 19th of May this year. Uh, so now in the UK, we trade our own carbon certificates, uh, but actually China followed the lead and um, uh, recently uh, uh, carbon certificates are started trading there as well. Uh, now, in terms of the prices, this is this is where it gets uh, particularly exciting to look at because uh, Europe and um, uh, European and UK carbon prices are more or less the same. Uh, trading at the moment with um, the UK ETS uh, trading roughly at £1 premium versus EUA. Uh, however, um, in China, the current price is uh, of, a, of a certificate is about €7 Euros, uh, versus European €57 Euros per tonne. Uh, so it's roughly eight times cheaper than the price in the EU or the UK. 
Uh, now, if we look back like 10 years ago, where the carbon prices were in the European scheme, they roughly were at the same levels. So although the current price of a carbon certificate in China is really, really cheap compared to the EU or UK, uh, it's still at the early stages of its development. So I, I would argue that it may be likely that uh, the price will actually rise uh, in the future. What do you think, Chris? I really think that the, the Chinese nation accounting for carbon is just such a positive thing, and it, and it can only go one way on price, but it's appropriate. Because if, if we're not accounting for the, the cost to the environment of putting carbon dioxide into the environment in any of the major markets, then the value of energy was underpriced. So completely agree with everything you said, Dimitri. So let's watch this space on the Chinese emission trading scheme. So that's the end of the session for today. Thanks, Dimitri. Thanks, Chris. And thanks for listening in, everyone. If you have any questions, please do email marketing at bradytechnologies.com and enjoy the rest of the summer. <laughs>